0: Hi, and welcome to the East German Fashion History Podcast. Today, we will be discussing the latter half of 60s fashion in the German Democratic Republic from 1971 to 1975, with a little overlap from 1970. Now, as I know, there's a lot of information to follow in these episodes, so I've restructured the format to better accommodate for easy listening. The general outline for the duration of this podcast will be organized as such. Each episode will begin with a recap from last week of some of the critical themes, then look into highlights for this week, delve into the timeline, and then a brief synopsis for each year since some of the years are really weighted in information. And this week, there will be no new episode of Got a Hot Minute, my recommended weekend reads. Lastly, you can find images, terms, and translations for this episode on the blog, which will be posted on Friday. So to recap last week, let's review three major takeaways. One, the rising political tensions and the creative transformation of Zabilla. Last week, we noticed a major shift at the publication as the domestic political tensions resulted in key figures like the fashion editor Dorothea Mellis and the layout designer Axel Bertram to leave while a new talent joined the magazine. And that would be Sibylle Bergemann. And she was really a photographer that was known for her definitive portraits that evoked something somber, yet also truly sublime. And I'll have images of her work on this week's blog post. Two, the role of the fashion photographer. Now at this point, fashion photographs in the GDR had a different position in the east as in the west where the photographer was really caught between art and commerce in the east he she they had no commitment or mandate to feature the sale of a collection gdr fashion photography was supported to inspire and show a facet of humanity three the saving face of the gdr so by the second half of the 1960s, there was a huge architectural expansion of East Berlin, which was to serve as the seat of the government. The Eastern half was to symbolize the urban core of modernity and social power of the socialist state. This was reflected through an editorial or more editorial, such as Gunter Rössler's Mode Rund um den Alex, Fashion All Around Alexanderplatz, This showed multiple perspectives of the city under construction with the latest fashions from the German Fashion Institute. And as I had mentioned before, after I finish this timeline or these episodes with the timeline up to 1990, I will have specific episodes dedicated to themes like fashion, photography, and architecture. So be on the lookout for that. If you love architecture, if you love fashion, it's going to be a great one. So this week, we're going to look at the surge of DIY clothing. Now, by the mid-60s, 20 to 30% of the clothes circulating in the GDR came from the West. And we'll see this figure increase. But there was also really not only necessity but out of popularity an interest in diy culture from sewing to knitting machines making your own jewelry even paper dresses which we'll get into that fad and while the newly state-controlled attempts at homogenization that took place in 1971 happened you can see really a tension between self-made individuality at odds with the standardized standardized fashion style 2. Denim domination. Whether Lee or Levi's, in the first half of the 70s as well as part of the late 60s, denim jeans became one of the most coveted items, and we'll see American denim as really a fixed part of the collective consumer consciousness of the East German citizens. 3. Exquisite. Exquisite is always going to be a major theme, but this luxury fashion boutique and its struggle, survival, and success is always also going to be something we're going to focus on. So let's dive into 1970. So by 1970, Exquisite was considered the, quote, last possibility for satisfaction of a specific wish. And this was even said by party officials while by the middle of the decade stores signed production contracts that would only last them till the end of the year it's it's still to be noted that one out of every 50 marks went to exquisite so east germans didn't really consider this to be side note they didn't really consider this to be an espoused luxury boutique as having high quality products no they were just there because they figured which market researchers had found out this was the best place to get good or acceptable pieces because everything else available from the ho or the state-owned stores they considered low quality now 1971 after the death of walter Ulbricht, to eric honecker became the new party leader and head of state in the german democratic republic The era of we work for today, we live for tomorrow was now over. The GDR wanted to refocus its efforts on the needs of the population with a housing construction program, program, being able to supply the demands of consumers and increasing purchasing power. Borders on the east towards the Soviet bloc countries, east bloc countries are now more open than ever As an East German citizen, you could travel to Bulgaria, to Hungary without without a passport. And Huanika also and the SED also called for a unity of social and economic policies. What does this mean? Simply, there was an increase of domestic supplies and domestic goods, as well as imports from the West. So this was really a heyday of consumerism in East Germany. So you had West German some highly prized West German products against East German products, which East Germans were constantly seeing and, you know, comparing and contrasting. Now, Zabilla's reaction to these new policies were quite vague in that they said that this really helped the country resolve a lot of its issues with a lack of goods. And alongside this stance, the publication rolled out a series of articles about new synthetics and how do you how how to, how they could be worn and where they'd be worn? One being uh, Malimo, which was around since 1964, and that was used for hats, slippers, protective work clothing, swimsuits, and the like. But side note: we can't talk about this without refreshing the imp- really the importance that almost existential importance of synthetics and their progress and their development in the GDR because it was they were inherently symbolic of the GDR success. In 1969 I know we're backtracking a little further but in 1969 at the 20th anniversary of the GDR they pre- they presented the f- the fabric Present 20 or Present 20. And this was launched in commemora- in commemoration of the East East Germany's 20th year anniversary and promoted as a great outerwear fabric. That year, the Hungarian magazine Nok praised the GDR for its connection and development to textile research by saying, "Quote: Thus, the chemical industry has a very important role in the GDR's clothing production. That is why they export every part to every part of the world, including France." So, in relation to other East. Block countries. And in comparison to the GDR had relatively very unique position when it came to researching and developing new synthetic fibers. Now, getting back to Zbilla and its newly transformed direction, obviously the content of the magazine, as it was kind of a mouthpiece for the government, was further refined to fit those directives. And they had some interesting series and articles such as in their fifth issue there was an article called Alltag im Cottbus or every day in Cottbus which is a city in East Germany um, and this really featured an interplay of fashion photographs and glimpses of everyday life in the city of Cottbus and this would continue when they would have articles such as everyday life in Karl Marxstadt," in Görlitz and Plauen but there was really obviously going to be discrepancy between the realities of everyday life and what was being portrayed. So this, this element of romanticizing each of these cities and their fashion culture was definitely a wonderful way of expressing a nationalized vision for socialist fashion or a East German socialist fashion. Now, Hunica's further standardization of the industry would also affect private businesses like the couturier Heinz Bormann. Remember him? He was the first, one of the few or only couturiers in East Germany um, that I'd mentioned in our episodes on the 50s. And Bormann at that point had proposed that he wanted to open a boutique in Berlin and that would specifically cater to party officers and generals. But regardless of his aspirations, to this lifestyle and to these party officials, he had a few things working against him which party officials criticized him on. First of all, they didn't like his Western lifestyle. For God's sakes, he owned a villa and he collected and loved fast cars, which I don't I don't know how that flies in, in the German Democratic Republic. Second of all, they remarked that he had a lack of profits to his business. And this is probably because of his design philosophy, which was class instead of masses. Again, he marketed himself as an atelier. This was, you know, beautiful garments that were handmade and people had seen him as as really uh, a a couturier. So they had seen that as, you know, being a lack of profits on his end. Now, after the SEDs, eighth-party conference, politicians initially turned down, ended up to turn down his proposal to have a store and to further nationalize Heinz Bormann's businesses. So concluding 1971, we started to see Eric Wonica's new policies of standardization really affecting fashion culture on various facets of it, while also increasing the amount of imports to meet consumer demands nineteen seventy two. There's an increase of homogenous of homogenizing and standardizing products and wanting to create even larger units of production and, elim- and an elimination of the of private companies and industries. So this affects Heinz Bormann. He was informed about this and that his company, which he had to sign off on, would be renamed VAB Magdeborger Damenmode. So the V.E.B., the state-owned, folks-owned folks Magdeborg Women's Fashions. By this time, um, you know, Bormann had already become like a, a well-known designer, as I had mentioned, where in 1965, the West German press coyly named him the Red Dior, also so in the beginning of the 70s especially 1972 the mail order catalog business really began to take off and the state-owned business konsumen was booming this was supposed to be like an Otto, which was a popular mail order catalog that is still around today in germany as well as in the states party and state leaders had huge visionary ideals for this old project drawings include a department store they even shown underground supply roads and landing decks and even airplanes so there were high aspirations for this and Kunzummen supplied everything from clothes to electronics uh, specifically to rural areas or agrarian areas but as in any business the Consumer was riddled with problems and contradictions. Many of the products featured ended up not being available after it was published with a note saying, "Quote, some articles in the catalog are not are only available after a later date. Unfortunately, orders placed before the month specified cannot be considered." So that's very frustrating. I couldn't imagine trying to order something and then I was too early in ordering the product I wanted. In terms of fashion and dress, consumen dedicated half of their catalog, that's 200 pages, purely to clothing. Typically, you would find women's blouses with a Delirons lace trim for 47 um, marks and 50 fenigs. So 47 marks and 50 fenigs in relation to the average monthly income of 750 marks, is still quite a price. And a lot of the fashion was considered conservative. There were no jeans, nothing of the folklore style, which was a trend we'll get into, no middies and no maxis. Another trend popular in this time, 1972, were the paper cloth paper dresses now this is also a micro trend that happened in the late 60s and early 70s in the states and in in the western countries or west european countries in the gdr um, the first collection appeared in 1968 and it sold out so cl- quickly that they turned they wanted to turn the fabric into fleece to expedite things now these aren't actually made of paper but they do have a paper-like quality They're very colorful with these geometric patterns, and you can basically all you had to do was cut it out, and there was your dress, and you could pick the hem length, which was also ideal. So, for someone who doesn't like to sew and is lazy like me, um, this is really great. And if we think about it in terms of fast fashion, it'd be interesting to compare the, the quality of that with something currently that you would consider immediate fast fashion. Now, These cost 11 marks and 50 pfennigs, and were made of 60% viscose, 20% delirone, and 20% polyester. After two times of wearing them, you really had to throw it away, though. I have a personal account from Ingrid H. from Apolda remarks that by the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s, there was a brief time where paper dresses were available. They were a total scream. So... Concluding 1972, private businesses like Heinz Bormann's are eliminated and standardized. The mail order catalog um, company, Konsumen, really takes off to thrive. And paper dresses become a hot micro, micro trend before and especially throughout this time. 1973. So I'm going to start off with a quote about denim. This is from Ralf from Leipzig. If you didn't have family in the West, it was impossible to get jeans, Lee's or Levi's. Jumo, Jugendmode, this was the youth clothing store, had Lee jeans for a time being. When I went to high school in 69, you were sent home for wearing jeans. Four years later, this was over at the very least. People cared if you wore jeans to formal, didn't cared at least if you wore jeans to formal events. So jeans were a big thing and these clothing regulations were slowly, slowly loosening up. So Levi's were like gold and information on how to sew them and putting rivets in with pliers were some of the many insider tips that people loved the Vietnamese women that had been employed to help with the labor, sh- the, the labor shortage in the GDR and their families had taken on the lucrative side job of making jeans according to the original templates. You could also buy the original you could also buy the original, but that would cost you your vacation money. It was well known that if you wore these. Jeans in the bathtub or in the Baltic Sea and let it dry, you'd have the most impeccable fit. And if they don't fit anymore, they would be turned into or DIY'd into something else like skirts and dresses. So jeans were a great investment in terms of transforming, I'm uh, wearing something that's always going to be in, but also transforming it into something else, which was all that the 70s was really about. Now Berlin parties began to notice that this was an iconic staple and it was really not going to go away anytime soon and we're going to get into that in the later half of the 70s in the next episode. So I have a quote from a Peta J from Schwet, and he says that he wore Levi's he wore that uh, he had a Vietnamese friend of mine made them. Um and made them for my friends and since most Levi's each had a different serial number ours all had the same ones but with this great Levi knockoff who really cares. Another major trend of another major aspect of 1973 we have to cover is the issue of surpluses on the general state of fashion retail market market researchers estimated half of ready to wear clothing avail- that was available at the time was really difficult to market and party officials had a lot of efforts such as you know season end sales they also would sell these surpluses at biva stores biva stands for billige waren, or cheap goods and there were all, of course they were continued they would continue to reduce the price of a lot of a lot of items on the international front, the GDR expanded giving long-term credits to pay for goods and their need for her hard currency to export surpluses into capitalist countries under, you know, with an under special conditions or they would sell these at a dramatically low price. In fact, 75 million Deutschmarks of garments were sold by the kilogram by 2% of the industrial price. They're really trying to let go of their surpluses both within the East Bloc, but especially also internationally or at least to East Germany. And at this time, um, the East German government also enlarged a network of inner shops, which we talked about before. Inner shop was a duty free shop that was opened after the war and was only available with West German products, but was only available for um, West Germans to shop in while they were visiting the East. Now in 1973, the government, the GDR, allowed the legalize the possession of West German currency, and now East Germans could shop at Inner Shop. So again... Going back to consumer culture, you have East German products against West German products, and now they can even see these these highly coveted items that you would find at inner shops. So this is really again the heyday the heyday of consumer culture and fashion. Consumer culture is going to be the '70s in East Germany. So concluding the year of 1973, um, this is really where they attempted to take an aggressive approach at tackling surpluses and while this was happening exquisite stores had reached their compa- their capacity of goods that they could sell and all the while the GDR had legalized the possession of west german currency and allowed its ciz- citizens to finally shop at inner shop 1974 so Uh, You have a global energy crisis, which its first shock to the economic system came in 1973, But, but East Germany would definitely feel those effects in 1974 as their need for crude oil and raw materials had increased and the prices of those had increased and something that they would never financially overcome. East German citizens still continued to judge their standard of living using capitalist criteria and, you know, they would see these, again, West German products, East German products and constantly compla- compare, complain and also make their own. DIY culture was another big thing which we're going to further get into. So, so these were some major, major aspects which we'll, which we'll see into 1974. Again, so I'm telling you a lot about these complaints, but there's also a lot of businesses that were subsidized. For an example, children's clothing, something that could be easily subsidized. And when the hot pants trend or when the hot pants trend really took off, there's an account of a woman who would just shop at these youth fashion stores. And because she was petite and she was short, she could buy her hot pants for free. And because she was... Older and and a woman, she could fit into them, and they would still look tight and cute. So, while there were was a lot of complaining, a lot a lot of businesses were still some some sections of the economy were were subsidized. Just a sidebar. Now, during this era, one could also see efforts of homogenization continue to be played out, and when the director of the German Fashion Institute announced in Sibylle that, quote, the fashion line, and I I Google translated this and tried to do my best at finessing this, but I think it says enough um, in terms of the intensity of how standardized things were. So this is what Walter Kahl, the director of the German Fashion Institute, said, quote, the fashion line representing the fashion model for the respective year and for the corresponding season is worked together with the industry and trade. The directors of all involved branches confirm the present results and we defend them before the minister. This preparation for the fashion line is the basis for a directive that is binding for everyone. This means that the liability has been decided by all involved. In addition, the industry and trade and other outstanding positions, the representatives of the Office for Standardization, Metrology, and Product Testing, as well as the Institute for Industrial Design include this group of experts. So now we're really seeing a hyper-standardization and homogenization of clothing being controlled. Um, If you've ever worked in a company where there's too many soups in the kitchen, this is is that on a national level. And as we mentioned in the, the past episodes and just what we, we as, you know, in our collective conscious of knowing about fashion, it's known to be fickle. So fashion is fickle and it's just, it's interesting to see how this is going to play out with the standardization of the fashion line and what's acceptable and what's going to be available at stores versus probably what you can make at home, which we'll see happen in 1975. So... I know that was a lot to handle. One more aspect of 1974, and then we'll dive right into 1975. So in spite of its propagandistic nature of showing progress and modernity, it was, it was all you know, Sibylla was ultimately trying to romanticize the perspective, its perspective. Um, and Sibylla Bergamann, which I'll feature this editorial on the blog, did a really beautiful portrait of the actri- actress, Actor Katharina Talbach. And it's really melancholy pictures of her quite sublime and really romantic. So there's, you know, you see in the fashion press, or at least at Sabbyla, you see this this romanticization of maybe what once was or what we'd like it to be while you have these hyper standardizations. You have an oil crisis. You have a lot of a lot of other factors happening. So, Concluding 1974, the global energy crisis, which started in 1973, continues to be a financial burden on East Germany. Regardless, consumers continue to compare GDR goods with the West. And at Zbilla, Zbilla, at Zbilla, Zbilla Bergmann's photographs really begin to take off, and this dreamy world of fashion or the these dreams that fashion is known to produce and to envision you can see or have expressed through her photographs 1975 so for 1975 for this year we're going to focus on some personal accounts of 70s fashion and the prevalence of homemade and diy methods this really becomes emblematic of East Germany's uh, East Germany and really symbolizes other aspects of possibly, you know, self-sufficiency and maybe maybe a desire for individuality, of course, within a socially acceptable framework. Now, I'd like to start off with an anonymous quote from Schick and Dedea, and while I always mention this source, I love this source for its facts there's there's never any a lot of quotes aren't are quite anonymous um but they're sort of like everyday sayings quote do you know something do you need something for every day you probably need something that fits well and is versatile for wherever your day may take you but as we say whoever can sew has better dresses So first and foremost, if you couldn't DIY anything without a sewing machine, for all the sewing machine nerds out there, um, a favorite sewing machine was Veritas and that was electronic. It had 16, 16 programs and four stitch varieties, and it was produced at the VEB or VEB, a sewing machine workshop. And this was really a hit. Um, There's one account of a working mother with two young boys. And in order to make ends meet, her husband buys her a veritas to sew their clothes. It takes her about a year to master it. But after that, she becomes the quote, favorite cousin who can sew everything. And probably this could have, this was probably a a good lucrative side job for her to be tailoring and sewing garments. And as we discussed last week, this was a huge part of the trade that happened, an exchange that happened in um, the black and gray markets in East Germany. Now, generally, if you didn't have a sewing machine, you probably had a knitting machine, and it was considered the lazy person's answer to sewing. So that would be me. Um, But from jackets to sweaters, suits, overalls, pants, and even even bathing suits, a lot was hand-knitted. Everything um, would be you everything that would be used you would use Alvo or Alvo wool. And fun fact you can find this type of wool on eBay Germany for two euro and ninety-five cents, which is three dollars and thirty-one cents. So if you really want to try it out. But it wasn't the best quality after four or five washes, it it really wasn't really good quality to, to be lasting or sustainable for that matter. Another trend you had was a lot of batik and tie-dye and in the late 60s, self-dyed and created patterns became a trend that really seeped into the 70s um, with a lot of possibilities to mix and match color tones. In general, the GDR Citizen had already sewed and knit and edited their closets to fit seasonal desires or remake pieces they may have seen in Zbille, made from the German Fashion Institute that weren't actually available. So citizens would have to go as far as, you know, dye their own pieces using batik techniques. And fun fact, I've done this before. It's a lot of fun, actually. Potatoes are, make really great stamps and really great pattern, really great um, bases for patterns and stamps. And it was common in East German households to really have, you know, your basements would be filled with basins of deep blue, bright red, and green dye water and making patterns out of potato stamps in addition to that. So you really had a lot of these different creative techniques that were ingenious that would underline elements of individuality, but by individuality we must be mindful that it was you know, within a social norm. Other popular mat- raw materials that would be used to make home make the home make, uh, clothes would be bed sheets. Um, and the book, which I got this from Dad mentions Uzbekistan has the the best bed sheets. Um, Uzbekistan fun fact is a Central Asian nation country, and that was also a part of the USSR. Also, if not used for infants or toddlers, diaper fabric was great. It was especially great for making your own summer tops. So, just to be clear, while the East was always going to be a bit more conservative, And, you know, the idea of the hippie was more of a carnival costume than it was an actual lifestyle. You know, the foundation for mixing patterns and cultures that you saw in the 70s in the West, you would also see in the East. However, one would combine East European folk look, which was a huge trend with, you know, cowboy cowboy hats, bell bottoms, uh, and screaming color combinations. But of course, let's remember we're in East Germany, so most often all of that was made by Dideron or synthetic fabrics, which were beloved. So to con- conclude 1975, which is when home-sewn and DIY culture continued to thrive in the homes of East German citizens and, this, and the streets of the state. And that's it for today. So I'll see you next week and for the latter half of the 70s where I'll talk more about denim culture in the GDR where things get seedy and they get interesting with their own brand of denim collection, a denim collection called Boxa and Visent and the copyright issues those get into. And you can also, I can—I will post these to the blog, but you can also find a lot of these pieces from the from wool to the paper dresses to these East German style denim programs pieces on eBay and eBay Germany. And lastly, I know that was a lot, but last week, lastly, this week I'd really like to thank my friends Stephen Casey from Philly, Leah Russell from Pittsburgh, and Mary Centrella from Ithaca for their wonderful feedback and support. Thank you so much. I hope you've digested this and I will have all the info all further information you'll need to further help you and just some visual images um for fun facts and stuff on the blog posted on friday danke and have a great evening